0: Let me encourage you, there should have been an insert in there, and that's what those people were going to be reading, if that worked out well. Um, I asked Jeffrey early. I said, is everything good to go? He said, yeah. And and if something happens, it's just the Lord. Uh, and so I think he was jinxing us there or something. <laughs> um, but in, in your bulletin, uh, you should have that insert. And and that is a confession. It comes from Ligonier. Uh, and a few years back, they put out this, statement of faith. It's called the Ligonier Statement on Christology. Christology uh, is just the study of Jesus Christ. We have different doctrines um, uh, that we study as as Christians, and Christology is the study about Christ. Does everybody have one of those? Do do a number of you have those? Maybe maybe let's just do this. Instead of the video, let's just read this together. I was planning on doing that later. Um, If you have one of those, if you don't, maybe scoot next to somebody that does. Uh, But let's just read this statement together. We confess the mystery and wonder of God made flesh and rejoice in our great salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. With the Father and the Holy Spirit, the Son created all things, sustains all things, and makes all things new. Truly God, He became truly man. Two natures in one person. He was born of the Virgin Mary and lived among us. Crucified, dead, and buried, He rose on the third day, ascended to heaven, and will come again in glory and judgment. For us, He kept the law, atoned for sin, and satisfied God's wrath. He took our filthy rags and gave us His righteous robe. He is our prophet, priest, and King, building his church, interceding for us, and reigning over all things. Jesus Christ is Lord. We praise his holy name forever. Amen. We want to begin a series um, this week, going through the next three weeks, uh, just dealing with. Who is Jesus? When we use words like Christology, I hope that doesn't scare you away. Uh, as I mentioned, it's just the study of, of who Jesus is. And and we as Christians, shouldn't we be able to answer that question, who is Jesus? You know, there there really is a problem in modern Christianity. Many professing believers don't under, understand exactly what they're professing to believe. We, we say they're a professing believer, but, but oftentimes you, you would say, well, what are you professing? What is it that you're saying that you believe? Uh, and for many of us, uh, we would probably be deficient or, or we would struggle to clearly articulate what it is that we believe about Jesus Christ. Many claim Christianity without sufficiently understanding the truths that are essential and foundational for the faith. I think we're a little bit like the people that I used to watch uh, Jay Leno, and and did he, did he, maybe I'm, for some of you that's like, makes me young. For others of you, uh, that makes me kind of old. Uh, but but if you ever watched that, you you might remember the segment that he did, jaywalking, and I loved that. Next to uh, my favorite segment was when he would read the headlines from newspapers that people would send in that were just absolutely hilarious you think how did somebody print that without not not seeing that uh, but my second favorite segment that he would do was a recurring segment uh, was that he would go around the people and just ask them really basic questions maybe about science or math or or often he would ask them about sort of what's going on in the news and, and politics and and so many of these people would just be totally clueless one of the things that he did one that I watched, here recently, he went around and and he asked people uh, the questions, some of the questions that would be on sort of the exam if you were coming in to become a citizen of the United States. So really basic things about our system of government. He would even ask them, like, who is the vice president? And people would just give him this blank stare. Like, I have no idea who the vice president is. They, they didn't know the basic understanding of, you know, we have a legislative branch and an executive branch and so forth. Uh, all of these really basic things, uh, you know, what was the Emancipation Proclamation? And people just like a deer in the headlights. You would think as as American citizens who value and treasure our system of government, uh, it is so unique and such a wonderful blessing that we've experienced. You would think we would know a little bit more about it. Well, I think for too many of us as Christians, I'm not sure it would be quite different if someone were to show up and say, oh, you're you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Well, what do you believe about Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus Christ and what is it that you even confess about him? Uh, I'm afraid that far too many of us would have that same deer in the headlights look uh, that people gave Jay Leno. Part of the problem is that today's version of Christianity uh, is a version where everyone simply wants sort of their felt needs to be met. Uh, everyone wants something that can really just be of sort of immediate, practical usefulness. So, so in churches, a lot of times we, we fill our times together talking about, you know, here are seven tips for a good marriage. That's what everybody wants, right? You want a good marriage. And so we're just going to talk a lot about marriage or about finances or this or that or the other. And, and so often that it really is the focus is sort of a seeker-sensitive version of Christianity uh, that, that everything is evaluated by the perceived needs of either unbelievers or immature believers. People don't want to sit through a sermon on Christology. Are you kidding me? Look, tell me how to have peace in my marriage. Tell me how to, how, 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 what I should do in terms of politics, or how I need to do my finances, and I'll listen to that. But, but we're going to sit through a dry, boring lecture on, on who Jesus was. For a lot of people, they don't want that. One pretty famous pastor said this. He's got a growing church, and and he's kind of said, basically, we don't need to focus too much on doctrine. This is one of the things he said. People are not on a truth quest. They, they are on a happiness quest. They will continue to attend your church, even if they don't share your beliefs, as, they, as long as they find the content engaging and helpful. In other words, he's saying, hey, don't, don't bore them to death. They want to be engaged. They, they want to kind of be entertained, and they want it to be helpful. They want to walk away with sort of a wow experience and and a few handy tips that are helpful in their life. And so talking about Christology, what we believe about Jesus Christ, that would be like off limits. Why, Why would we bore people with that? Another person has described Christianity as moralistic therapeutic deism. Not true Christianity, but what we have in our world, and that—that that sounds like a big word, but moralistic therapeutic deism. I've talked about this before, but I think it's so, so hits where Christianity is today. I'm going to talk about it again. It's it's morals. A lot of people want a good moral life, and so Christianity can give them a little bit, a little bit of morals, so they can kind of feel good about themselves, and then it's therapeutic which means you kind of help me with my life, help me deal with my stuff, my marriage and children and, and so forth. So, so kind of give me a little bit of therapy here. And then deism, like, well, yeah, I believe in God. It's just this sort of bare belief in God without a lot of details, without a lot of doctrinal specificity. So so give me my morals, help me with my life, and, and I believe in God. And that's that's kind of the summation of a lot of Christianity today. But listen, Christianity is based on knowing and believing the truth christianity is not just a self-help system It, it isn't just about helping you have a better marriage will following christ help you in your marriage absolutely does the Word of God speak to how we ought to be good stewards of our finances or how we raise our children or how we deal with conflict in the work, workplace? Absolutely. It touches on all of those things. I'm not saying those things should never be talked about. But, but what I'm saying is it's so much more than that, right? It is so much more than just those things. It isn't merely useful information to help you in your life. The Bible talks about the Christian faith as the faith, the faith. So in the book of Jude, it talks about the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. And when we talk about the faith with that, not not my subjective faith, my faith, but the faith, we're talking about a set of of teachings. And that's really at the heart of Christianity. It, it, It is about knowing and believing the faith about God, who God is, and, and who man is, and who Jesus Christ is. And so we've got to know those things. We've got to be able to confess them clearly. When we look to the New Testament, we see that this idea of knowing the truth, knowing doctrine, knowing who God is, knowing, knowing who Jesus Christ is, knowing what the gospel is, the way of salvation, those things are of supreme importance in the New Testament. They aren't just put over here like, well, of course, you've got to check off a few doctrinal boxes, believe these things, and then let's get to the meat of Christianity, which is kind of helping you live your life. That's not the way Christianity is. When we look to the New Testament, the, 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 the primacy is given, the, the importance is placed upon knowing the truth about God and about His Son, Jesus Christ, and knowing the way of salvation, which is the Gospel. So when we look to the New Testament, we see Paul... Who writes to his sort of the one he had mentored, his son in the faith, Timothy, who was a pastor, one of the things that we find is that he repeatedly urges him to know and teach the truth. That was his obligation. Paul's Paul's saying, This is what you need to do. You need to know and teach the truth. So in 2 Timothy 1:14, he says, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit that has been entrusted to you. Paul's writing to Timothy. He's saying, I've handed this truth off to you. The the faith, these doctrines, what to believe. I've handed them off to you, Timothy. And now by the Spirit of God that's in you, you need to guard those. You need to protect them. They are of supreme importance. And he warns Timothy about other people who don't teach the truth. In 1 Timothy 6.3, he says, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Like if you get the doctrine wrong, if, if you leave and go away from the teaching about who Jesus is and who God is and so forth, listen, he says you're conceited and you don't understand anything. You've got it all wrong. So Paul warns Timothy about that. He says one of the qualifications of a pastor in Titus when he's writing to Titus, he says a a pastor, someone who desires that office must hold firm the trustworthy Word as taught so that He may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. The role of pastors is not to be a psychologist, to not, not, not to give self-help tips or, or to try to help you tweak your life a little bit so it'll go better. Not that any of those things is completely off you know, what the, the scope of the Bible is, but the, the central part of it is that, that pastors would be able to give sound instruction or instruction, rather, in sound doctrine. And he warns in 2 Timothy, he warns about those who would no longer want to listen to teaching. He says that some people who profess to, to be Christians will come in the last days and they will have itching ears. that They, they, they want, want to listen to sound doctrine. They won't have any concern for sound doctrine. I don't want to hear about the incarnation. I don't want to hear about the trinity. I I don't want to hear about salvation by grace alone through faith alone. I'm not really interested in those things. I don't want to have those kinds of teachers. Instead, he says, people who are like that, who have these itching ears, will accumulate to themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Help me live my life to get what I want. I've got these passions, I've got these desires, and what I want out of church is is just some some instruction to help me get the things that I already want. Instead, Paul tells Timothy and and Titus, and he would speak to us and say, "No, no, no, that's not what it's about. It's not about your passions. There is truth. There is ultimate truth about God and about Jesus Christ that you must know, that you need to know. And that's the role and the job of the church and of pastors is to preach the truth in season and out of season, Paul tells Timothy. Look, when people want to hear it, when when they're longing to hear uh, sound doctrine and when they don't want to listen at all, when they want to hear those teachers that suit their own passions, either way, the church needs to be a place that is proclaiming the truth about Jesus Christ. And really, Paul wasn't saying anything new with this emphasis on doctrine. All of that really comes from our Lord Jesus Christ who took upon Himself the name Truth. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth. Jesus is a person, but He's the truth personified. He is to be believed. And when He gave His disciples their job until the end of the age, do you know what He said for them to do? He said for them to go and make disciples. And how do you make disciples? Teach them, teach them, teach them to observe all that I have commanded. Not not teach them how to tweak their marriage a little bit. Not, not, not give them some helpful principles for how to, how to raise their children or things like that. And, and again, I'm not saying that the Bible doesn't speak to those things at all, but that isn't the center of it. He says, teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And listen, this morning, the teaching about Jesus' identity is one of the most important doctrines we can confess. The teaching about who Jesus was, as I've said earlier, Christology, is one of the most important doctrines that we confess. If we as Christians cannot rightly and faithfully confess Jesus Christ, then we have nothing. Like if someone says, who is Jesus? And you don't know what to say, that's a big problem. That's a bigger problem than Americans who don't know about our bicameral legislature. Right? That's a huge problem. That's That's a problem with eternal consequences. Right? If we as Christians cannot rightly and faithfully confess Jesus Christ, then we have nothing. If you have ten tips about a better marriage or seven principles to guide your finances, but you cannot clearly express who Jesus is, then we are failing as a church. Think about the Gospels. I hope you've read the Gospels, and if you have, one of the things that you would notice about the Gospels is that the the entire conflict revolves around this question the entire conflict in that narrative right every narrative has some sort of conflict what's the conflict in the gospel it is the identity of jesus who is jesus i mean that's what it's all about right jesus makes these these big time claims about his identity and his authority and where he came from and so forth and so on and and there are people some of them believe the truth about His identity, and some people reject Him. And ultimately, what is it that leads to His crucifixion? What leads to His crucifixion is that these religious people say, look, you're claiming something about yourself that isn't true. You're claiming that you're God in the flesh. You're claiming to be equal with God. And therefore, they, they crucified Him. The entire narrative revolves around that. John said in his Gospel... John 20, verse 31, he tells us why he wrote his gospel. He says, but these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So listen, this morning, the question that Jesus asked Peter in Matthew chapter 16 is one of the most important, if not the most important question that, you, that you're going to have to answer, that you need to answer. And the question is this, who do men say that I am? You remember when when Jesus asked Peter that? Who do men say that I am? Peter said, well, some people say you're John the Baptist, some think that you're Elijah, and so forth. And then he asked Peter, but, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter says to Jesus, he responds, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, you're right, and, and, and blessed are you, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. That's the most important question that you can answer. We, we want you to have a good marriage. We, we want you to, to know how to steward your finances well, how to raise your children. We want to help you deal with conflict. We, we want you to, to have some of those uh, things. But the most important question that you can answer It's who is Jesus? So we want to to spend some time thinking about this week. The the, the question is, can you faithfully and accurately confess Jesus? Just just imagine, you're one of those people on the street. They come up to you, who is Jesus? You, You say that you're a Christian. Who is He? Is He God or is He man? Did He exist before His birth or was His birth the beginning of His existence? If He's God, how could He be God while truly living human life, a human life on earth? Did he stop being God for a time? Or was he some sort of superhuman? And if that's the case, it, is it even true that, that he lived a human life? If he was a man, then how could he possibly possibly be truly God? God is omnipotent, but Jesus got, got tired, right? God is omnipresent, but Jesus was in in, in a single place. God is holy, but Jesus lived in a sinful world. How could both God and man be united in a single person? Wouldn't one sort of override the other? And that's where so many people are, right? They, they either think about Jesus as sort of God walking around here on earth, just, just doing whatever He pleased, or or others kind of just think of Him exclusively as a man and and, and miss His deity. Christians have... Have wrestled with those questions and questions like that uh, throughout the history of Christianity, but particularly for the first several hundred years, that's what Christians were trying to answer: How do we define who Jesus is? And it wasn't that they didn't have an answer because their their answer was always clear that that Jesus is God manifest in the flesh. They they always confessed from the very start that Jesus was both God and man. In fact. One of the, the clear statements, the, the sort of expressions that defined the early church was the statement kurios Christos, which is to say, Jesus is Lord. And that does mean that Jesus is master, but it means so much more than, than he's just master. It means that Jesus is God. That's what the early Christians confessed, kurios Christos, Jesus is Lord. But but for the first several hundred years and even beyond that really throughout the throughout church history there have been challenges to that new challenges to that simple answer that required them to go back and and seek to to dig a little bit deeper uh into ways and and understand what that did mean and and what that simple confession did not mean and i think it's important for us as christians to have some sense of idea of what that means that jesus was fully god and fully man that he was truly god Truly man. Now I'm not suggesting here that we should expect every Christian, for every Christian person to be able to work out in detail all the nuances of the incarnation, like the the hypostatic union and perichoresis or communicatio idiomatum. Big words like that. I'm not suggesting... That, that all Christians should be able to, in detail, give scholarly answers to that. Nor am I saying that you need to be a history buff and you've got to be able to understand what docetism is or Nestorianism or Apollinarianism. You've got to understand those and, and be able to, to defend the biblical view uh, against those errors. I'm, I'm not suggesting that we have to be trained theological and historical scholars. But what I am suggesting this morning is that we as followers of Jesus Christ should be able to and must be able to confess in a basic yet clear and faithful way who Jesus is. Can you do that? Can you confess that is to say what the Bible says about who Jesus is and his identity in a way that is maybe simple, but that is clear and faithful to what the Bible says? says well our goal over the next couple weeks here is is really to do that maybe to grow in our ability to do that I hope if you uh, are, are a Christian here this morning I hope that you're all already able to uh, in some degree be able to do that but that's why we've turned to this confession here and and that's really what we want to 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 work at and we're going to be looking at John uh, primarily this morning but but I want to use this confession as, as sort of a, a basis for that. It says this, we confess, if you have it before you, we confess the mystery and wonder of God made flesh. That, that little simple statement there is, is really at the heart of it. We, we confess, that is to acknowledge the truthfulness and to say what the Bible says, we, we confess that God was made flesh. That's what, what we believe about Jesus Christ. And later on in the second stanza there, it, it says that he was truly God. He became truly man. He was everything that makes God, God. The son was God in every way. And everything that makes man, man, humanity, Jesus was that. And that's what we confess. Truly God. He became truly man. 1 Timothy 3.16, Paul says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. That's our confession. God was manifest in the flesh. And that's where that confession is getting, uh, that that phraseology there. In In the epistle of 1 John chapter 4, he says this, By this you know the Spirit of God, Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess, Jesus is not from God. That's what we confess. We, con- we confess that Jesus has come in the flesh. That is to say that He was fully man. Flesh there is just a, a terminology to describe our createdness, our, our, our being as, as humanity. Uh, we, we are flesh. And, and he's saying here, one of the things that we must confess, in fact, something that, that is essential to confess if we understand that we've come from God, is that we confess that Jesus has come in the flesh. He was fully, truly man. But then verse 15, he goes on to say in that same chapter, of 1 John it says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and He and God. And so there's the second part of our confession. We confess that Jesus came in the flesh, but we confess likewise that Jesus is the Son of God. He's divine. He's, he's in the flesh, fully human, but He's the Son of God. He's fully divine, truly divine, both at, at one time. And so that's our goal here, is, is to learn more accurately and more faithfully to be able to confess that. But notice, it doesn't say just to confess in that first stanza. It says, we confess the mystery and wonder of God made flesh and rejoice in our great salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. Our goal in this is not just so that we can grow in our understanding, so so that we can just be a little more heady, a little more knowledgeable, so that we could feel good about ourselves in the case that somebody did come up to us and we would have all the right answers to be able to describe who Jesus is. No, no, no. We as Christians don't just confess this, but we rejoice in it. We rejoice in the reality that God has taken on flesh, that God became man so that he could redeem you and me who were sinful, you and me who who deserved death and who deserved judgment. We delight in it. We rejoice in it. That's our goal as we contemplate this. So often I think the reason churches don't really focus on doctrine is because there's not a, a true love for God and a true love for Christ. Listen, if you love someone, you want to know about them, right? Am am I right? You want to know details about them. And, and if you truly know the Lord and you love the son, the son, Jesus Christ, if you love Him, you're going to want to know about Him. If you don't really care about God, then you're going to want to know these other things that can help you. Things that suit your own passions. I don't care about God. Don't, don't spend time talking about Trinity. Don't, don't spend time talking about the Son being God. Amen. I'm not really that concerned about it. I'm concerned about the things that suit my own passions. But we ought to rejoice And the fact that God was made flesh. In fact, John says in 1 John 1 and verse 4 that he talks about the the eternal life that was made manifest. And again, he's there describing the incarnation of of Jesus Christ. And and he says at the very end of that that he's telling us these things so that that we could have fellowship with him and, and his fellowship is with the Father and with the Son. He says, and we are writing these things that our joy may be complete. There's joy in these things. We we enter into fellowship with God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and as we enter into fellowship with them through, through confessing Christ, there is a joy and a delight in these things. We're writing that our joy may be complete. You notice as well in this statement that he says here, we confess the mystery and wonder the mystery and wonder. And we just have to say, as we're talking about who Jesus was, that we are dealing with, with truths that, that very quickly get to the fringes of our human knowledge. Uh, we've got to be careful that, that we don't say, well, we can't understand everything, so we're just not going to worry about doctrine because you can't know it all. They're, they're just things that are beyond our ability to comprehend. We must reject that because if God has revealed something about himself, then we can know it. Okay? If Jesus has revealed something about himself, we can know it. Now, here's the thing. We may not be able to understand how that can be. We, we may not be able to wrap our minds around how in one person there can be two natures, fully God and fully man, existing at the same time in one person. Can we fully wrap our minds around and answer all the questions that we have? No, that's mystery. It, it, it's beyond our ability of, of fully comprehending and fully understanding. But don't let the fact that you cannot fully comprehend it or fully understand it to, to mean that you can't understand it at all. That, that it's no big deal. Well, that's just incomprehensible, so let's just not worry too much about talking about Christology. Why will we do that? We can't even fully understand it. No, no. He's revealed these things to us, so we can know them, and, and we must know them. So the challenge in confessing, the challenge is rather confessing what is revealed and not attempting to go beyond it. And, and in fact, as we talk I mentioned some of the errors throughout church history really it, at the heart of every error about who Jesus is was someone's attempt to make this understandable we got to make this a little more comprehensible so so maybe if we just say well you know there, there was a, a man and at the baptism the, the spirit of God the spirit of God the son came upon and rested upon this person who was really just a man uh, maybe that helps us understand how he was the Son of God and a man at the same time. Or, or other people uh, had the idea, well, well, it was almost just like you know, there was a body there, but it was a lifeless body, and then the Son of God just kind of came in. There was no human soul. Uh, there, there, there was just a, a lifeless body, and, and he incarnated that lifeless body and gave it life. That All of those things... Seem to make it a little easier to understand. Yeah, that I guess that could make sense, and I could kind of wrap my head around that. Kind of the way we get into a car. God got it. it God the Son got into this body and, and controlled it. But, but it's not that. Jesus was fully, truly human. He he had a human soul. He had a human will. He had a human mind, and he was at the same time fully God. So, all of the errors about who Jesus is really go back to. People who are trying to make it more understandable. So as we look to John this morning, and we're going to probably come back to this and and look more in depth. Um, Let's read John chapter 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Let's skip to verse 14 for the sake of time. It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. There are several things that we notice, and we're not going to fully just walk through this text, but I just want to point out several things uh, about this text. First of all, the simple point of this text and this introduction to the gospel uh, of John is really what we've been saying, that in Jesus, God was made flesh. God was made flesh, truly divine, truly human this passage is sort of unique. The other gospels uh, focus really on the incarnation sort of from the earthly side of things or from, from the natural standpoint. So we look at it from the point of Joseph and Mary and the shepherds and we're seeing angels come down and things are being described about her conception and them going and traveling to Jerusalem. But, but the interesting thing about the Gospel of John is that he has a more theological uh, a, approach or, or we might say a spiritual or a heavenly view of the Incarnation. He's looking at not all of the details in in history, but but he's looking at it from the side of the the eternal Word, the eternal Son of God who who takes on flesh. And just notice several things here about about what he says concerning Jesus. First of all, Jesus is co-eternal. In the beginning, the Word already existed. In the beginning was the Word in the beginning, if you go back to the beginning, that, that, that's language that comes right out of Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And John is saying, if you go back to the beginning, you go back to when things began to be created, guess what? The Word, the Son of God, was already there. He was already in existence when things started to come into existence. He is co-eternal with God the Father. He he predates the beginning of all things. Later on, we see that the Pharisees, they they were ready to kill Jesus because He claimed something like this. In John 8, 56, Jesus said, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see My day. Uh, Abraham was a long time before their day, and He's saying Abraham rejoiced as he looked forward that he saw My day. He saw it and He was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. You go back to the time of Abraham, which was a long time ago, and you say, how could Abraham see your day? Or did you see Abraham? I don't think so. You're, You're not even yet 50 years old. And he says, listen, my existence predates Abraham. And in fact, he uses a terminology here when he says, before Abraham was, I am. That's the the name that God gives to himself in the Old Testament. Jesus is clearly here articulating in a very clear way his deity. He is co-eternal. Jesus is not only co-eternal, but he is co-equal with the Father. Notice again in verse 1, in the beginning was the Word The Word was with God and the Word was God. He is co-equal. The Word was with God. B.B. Warfield says about this passage, he says, it is not merely coexistence with God that is asserted as two beings standing side by side. And he goes on to say, what is suggested is an active relationship of communion. Listen, the one who was eternally with the Father... and and had this kind of fellowship with the Father, the the one who is like that is equal with God. And this is why uh, Jesus can say in John 5.18, it says that the, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him, because not only was He breaking the Sabbath, but He was even calling God His own Father, making Himself equal with God. Jesus is truly divine, He's co-eternal. He is co-equal. And as co-equal, we see that he's also the co-creator. That in verses three and four, it tells us that this word, the son of God, in verse number three, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Listen, all throughout the Bible, it is clear. God is the one who created You you ask any any Old Testament person who's a person of faith, they say God created the world. And now here John is saying that this Word that was in the beginning with the Father and and had fellowship and communion with the Father who was equal with the Father is also a co-creator with the Father. You see, He's equal with the Father. He's co-eternal. He is co-equal. And He is consubstantial. Consubstantial. There's a big word for you. But, but essentially that just means of the same substance, the very same substance. That was one of the, the great debates in the early church. Are, are we just saying here that, that Jesus was a God like God, that he was another God, that he was a God of, of similar substance, the things that make God God? Jesus the Son was, was like that, he was another God? And, and, and the church clearly and decisively came to understand based on what Jesus said about Himself. No, no, He's not just of a similar substance. He's not just another being who is like God, but that He is the very same substance. He is God. The word is homoousios. He's of the very same substance. He is very God of very God. And that's what we see again in our confession. Truly God. He became Truly, man, everything that makes God, God, the son, the word was as well. In verse one, we see this very clearly, don't we? In the beginning was the word. Here's his eternality. The word was with God, his equality with God. But then notice here, the word was God. The word was God. He's one with the father. He, he is God. There, there's this distinction. He's with, with God. But then at the same time, there's this, this identity with the Father. He's, he was God. He is here even the, the term, the idea of Him being the Word. Is the idea that he's the self-expression of God. When we speak, we're revealing ourselves. And Jesus our God all throughout the Old Testament is revealing himself. He's speaking, he's speaking, he's speaking. But now he, we have a word who is personified. We, we have God speaking and revealing himself in a personal way. This is why the writer of Hebrews, which we looked at, could say that the Son is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. You, you see, my children are like me in very many ways. They share some of my DNA. They, they maybe look like me, unfortunately. Sometimes they act like me. Again, unfortunate. Uh, but but they, they are like me in very many ways, but they are not the exact imprint of my nature. There's distinction. But when it comes to the Son, to the Word, He's of the exact substance, of the same substance. He's the exact imprint of of the nature of God. And God has revealed Himself through the Son. You see this as well in verse 18. In verses 17 and 18 of our text, He says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only, the only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. That, that word there, to make Him known. It is a word that means to interpret or to to exegete. And 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 so Jesus is the perfect interpret interpretation. He is the perfect explanation of God. Do you want to know what God is? God is like? Look to Jesus Christ. He's the perfect explanation of of God. He is consubstantial. So the question this morning for us is do we confess this and do we Rejoice in this if, if you're lost here this morning if you never believed in Jesus Christ I would invite you to to confess this that Jesus is the Son of God that he's truly God and and truly man we recognize from John chapter six that making that kind of confession can only come about when God does a work in your heart no, no one can believe in Jesus unless the, the the father draws him Jesus tells us in John 6:44. It is a work of God, but if God has stirred in your heart this morning, I would invite you to believe and confess that Jesus is indeed the Son of God, that He is truly God and truly man come in the flesh to redeem us and to save us. Church, this morning, if you are a believer, I would just ask you to pray. If, if, if it is a, a fact uh, that, that we can only make that kind of confession, a person can only come to the Father or come to the Son if the Father draws him, then we need to be praying for the loss that God through His Spirit would open their eyes to make this confession that Jesus is Lord, that, that He is God in the flesh. We need to be praying for our children We don't need to assume that because our children grow up in church and hear the Christmas story and hear us talk about how Jesus is God, we don't need to assume that they're going to confess that. Because again, Jesus said, no one can come unto Me unless My Father draws Him. Paul tells us in Corinthians that no one can say Jesus is Lord apart from the Spirit. The Spirit of God, the the Father, must draw people to make that confession. So we need to be praying for the lost. And then we need to be asking ourselves, are we confessing this? Have we gotten so wrapped up in all the other things? And there, there are other things, right, in, in Christianity. There are, are other doctrines. There are other teaching. But But one of the things that we see about the early church that was so compelling is that they had this singular message that Jesus is Lord. And sometimes I think we get so distracted with so many other things, and what a wonderful time Christmas is where where we kind of come back to this truth again and again. It's just a reminder, and we need to be brought back to it again, that that's what we confess. That's what unites us. That's what draws all of us together here this morning is that we confess Jesus is Lord, that He is God in the flesh who is our Redeemer and our Savior. We need to keep the main thing, the main thing. And we need to confess that to the world. Yes, the Spirit of God must open people's eyes to make that confession and to believe that Jesus is really God in the flesh. But listen, they need to hear that confession from us. Do do people in your workplaces, do your your family members know that you believe Jesus is God in the flesh? Do do they know that? That's what they've got to know. that's, That's central to the Gospel. They may know about your political preferences. They may know that you're conservative, that you try to live a good life, that you go to church, that you give in the offering. They may know all kinds of things about you. But listen, the most important thing that they can know is that you confess Jesus is Lord and that He's your Savior. Are you clear about that in your life? And then I would just invite us, we should rejoice in this. We, We should rejoice because this truth is amazing isn't it amazing if you believe this if you believe the word of god that god came in the flesh what what wonder and that's the word that's used in the confession what an amazing thing that the god who is the creator of all things who existed before creation and who made everything that is created then entered into creation to redeem you and me what an amazing amazing reality It's such an amazing thing. That was part of the problem why the people couldn't receive him in Jesus' own day. You're saying here, you, this man who's talking to us right now that you existed before Abraham? What an amazing thing to think about. It truly is an amazing thing. We ought to rejoice in it. We should rejoice in it because it speaks of God's love for us. John 3.16 is so clear that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son The Son existed before and He gave Him. He came into this world that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. We should rejoice because God came looking for us. Humanity was lost. Humanity was broken. Humanity was without hope. The only hope that we had was that God would enter into this mess, that He would take on humanity in order to deliver us and redeem us. And we ought to rejoice in that this morning. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, what a wonder. What, what an amazing reality that You would send Your Son, who was with You in the beginning, who's co-equal, co-eternal, and consubstantial with You, to, to enter into this world, this broken, sinful place, and to take on humanity that He might redeem us. Lord, what an act of love. What what a gracious thing. God, I pray for anyone here this morning who has never believed in Christ that they would be drawn by Your power this morning to confess Him. That through Your Holy Spirit, they would be able to declare today for the first time, Jesus is Lord. God, for the rest of us who, who are well acquainted with this, Lord, would You once again stir our delight in this truth. Sometimes these things which are so amazing and so filled with wonder and beauty just become commonplace in our mind, and they should never be such. God, would you stir our affections to delight and to rejoice in this confession that Jesus is Lord, that God was made flesh. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.